the book of Isaiah, chapter 14. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say, O God, with what our own hands have made, for in you the fatherless find compassion. I will hear the, heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree, his fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the vine, the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fr fruitfulness comes from me. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Let me ask you the question. What do you do when you've blown it in a relationship? How do you recover? How do you make things right when you've done something terrible and you know it? The times where you've hurt someone that matters to you at such a level that you don't even want to see their face because the shame is too great. And perhaps it's someone that you've wronged more than once and so you don't even want to say sorry because they're going to feel like talk is cheap. You've already done this before. What do you do in those situations? I remember one time with my parents, one of many times, where I deeply shamed my parents. And I'm not going to go into all the details because their cultural aspects are going to be confusing that I don't want to get into right now. But um, this situation, I totally shamed my dad in front of a group of large, large group of people. And I remember in the moment, I was out. I was living out of my selfishness and out of my self-protection, so I didn't give a rip about what he thought or how he felt. But then as, as everything kind of starts to settle, I realized what a fool I was and how much I hurt and shamed my father. And when I got home, my parents, for the first time and the last time, they actually, the way they punished me is they asked me to put a chair over my head and hold it. Now, imagine a nine-year-old less buff Sam, okay? Um, less buff is, is, is the key word, right? And so I'm this scrawny little Asian skinny kid, and I'm holding it and shaking like crazy. And I think they asked me to do it for like two minutes, and I lasted for like 30 seconds or whatever, right? And I'm about to be crumbled, and they're like my mom, you know, m moms can be so weak sometimes, and they're like, oh, just, it's okay. And my dad was like, oh, it's, it's fine, you can stop. And I remember when my dad said, you can stop, I thought to myself, can't. I haven't suffered enough. I need to feel more pain. Because at that moment, I genuinely feel like I wronged my dad. And so I feel like I haven't filled up the, the pain yet. I don't feel like the, the um, punishment fit the crime yet. My, my conscience is, is seared. It, it's hurting right now. It need, needs a bomb. And that bomb was my suffering. And so I was like, no, no, no. Let me do it longer. Let me do longer five seconds, but like I just kept trying over and over again. It was probably a pretty pathetic sight, but I was trying to show my dad, I really am sorry, I really am sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Let me suffer a little longer because I deserve it. Maybe some of you guys can relate with that. I remember another time um, I got a D minus or F in school. Believe it or not, Asians can get that. Um, it was PE, just kidding, no, it was like, it was like, 
it was math or something, okay? I did great in PE. Um, but it, it, was, it was like math, it was, for sure it was math. Um, and I remember at that, I don't know if they still do this, but you have the report card and you have to bring it home and they have to sign it. And I remember bringing it home and just knowing that it would just be, it would be bad, it would be ugly. Um, and I remember not going home, I ran away. Because I was scared to death for my own sake, because I was wise. <laughs> but at the same time, I just dreaded seeing the shame on my, the shame I would feel as my parents looked at me and feel so disappointed. And so I ran. And I think some of you here can relate with me in both of those stories and others if I multiplied them and had time. The reality is, is that many Christians relate with God this way. When we've blown it and we know it, we don't know what to do with it. And so we do things like what I said. We try to punish ourselves longer. We put ourselves in a penalty box and say, if I can just be here for long enough and feel bad enough, then maybe I can come back and pray and get right with God. Maybe you can relate with that one. That's a very common one in the West especially. Or maybe um, you uh, are like an ostrich and you stick your head in the sand and you just ignore it because the pain hurts too much and you just don't want to feel the reality of how messed up you can be and how disappointed our father could be. Many of us have heard this term repent and we've talked about it a lot during the series, but I think a lot of times it's one of those Christian common words in our vocabulary that we just, vocabulary that we just use and we have no idea what we're actually saying. And I think because we don't actually understand what it means to repent, we actually shortchange the healing and restorative process God has for us. And so that's why we find ourselves sometimes repeatedly going back to the same places and never finding the freedom that God has for us. And so we're going to talk about what does it look like to go home. The title of the message is, is The Way Home, The Way Back Home, How to Return When You've Blown It. What do you do? In a situation where you know you've blown it and you know you want to return back to God and get right with him, how do you do it? And this text has really great news because God holds us by the hands and shows us how to do it because he wants to be restored to us. Let me give you just an overview of where we're heading. So there should be an outline on the screen. So in the first verse, God is calling the people to return through Hosea. And then the second verse through the fourth, third verse, he is being merciful by giving them the playbook of this is how you come back to me. And then verse four shows us his beautiful, gracious response. And then verse um, five through eight just talks about all the beautiful restorative, restorative promises he has for those who returned him. And finally, in verse nine, the passage ends with just an open-ended. Maybe you heard it when Tim was reading at the very end. It doesn't end on a definitive note, it just ends on an open note. What are you going to do about this? Now that you heard, what are you going to do? That's how the, the whole book ends, and that's how um, this will end here. So let's start in verse 1. Hosea chapter 14, verse 1. Return, Israel, to Yahweh your God, Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Note the word here, return. And what I'm, I want to do is I want to take very common words and just start turning them like a diamond and seeing different facets of it. Words that are very, very common to us that we're just like, okay, okay, let me just move on to the, the good stuff. What, is, what does it mean that he would say return? Well, in a very, very basic observation, to return means someone had to have left, right? I mean, this is Dr. Seuss right now 
at this point, but I think it's very valuable, valuable to think about. The first and foremost, when we say return, that means they left him. Israel left him. They left the fountain of life. They left the one who only did good always to them. And Israel left him. It's, it's the ultimate celebrity breakup where everyone is writing and wondering, what, why did they leave? What, what were they thinking? Except a billion times more, and that's not even coming close to it. And let's go further. If God is calling Hosea as a prophet to say return, which ultimately means that who wants them to return? God. God is leading Hosea to call Israel to return because he wants them to return. So we need to stop and think, what, is that, what does that mean about who God is? What is that saying about his character and what he's like? Well, how would you feel if someone left you? Especially someone close to you, and especially someone you've done a lot of good towards. That changes things, right? If someone leaves you that you just met, it changes it drastically if someone who leaves you that you have poured out blood, sweat, and tears for. It's one thing when you're terrible and someone leaves you and you, you in a moment of clarity, think, yeah, that makes sense, right? I'd do the same, right? It's another thing when you can, when you can legitimately say, I've only done only good to them. Why would they leave? Let's marvel for a second before we keep going into this text at the God who would love those who leave him. Who would not just say, I'm done. I have every right to be done. Have you ever seen someone leave someone else and everyone says, well, that person has every right to leave them. Or everyone's saying that that person has every right not to let the person come back. Right? Why would they do that? Why, why, they shouldn't do that. They don't deserve a second chance. And yet, this is the God that we serve and the God of the Bible. A God who seeks after those who run from him. Notice this next part in verse 1. To the Lord your God. To the Lord your God. It's striking here because when you say your, you're saying possession. Which means that God is still associating himself with these people. Right, right. You, you may have heard people say in a very crass way, oh, go to your mother. Like, it's your mom. Like, as if, as if you don't associate yourself with that person. Uh, sometimes parents can rudely, terribly say stuff like that. But God is still associating with his wayward people. He is like the husband who still wears the ring years later after his wife has left him. And people are like, you still wearing that old ring? She still belongs to me. And every night after work, he goes out looking for her. Just kind of like what Hosea did, searching after his wife, his wayward wife, Gomer. Hosea, you still waiting for her? She's never coming home. You still looking for her? She's found better. That's what God does. Can we just marvel at that? Can we not? I know I've said this before because this is a repetitive theme throughout Hosea, but can we not be desensitized to that truth? Well, of course he'd come after me. <laughs> Look at me, right? Come on. Why would he go after you? Why would he go after anyone, especially how we treated him? See, do you see how humble God is <laughs> to do such a thing? Do you see what a laughingstock in the heavens he must be as the angels and the demons laugh at him? You can't keep your wife. God, you can't keep your child. They keep running from you. I, I thought about the word condescension. It's not a word that we use too often, but I thought it'd be helpful to put the definition on the screen. 
condescension. It's a noun. It's a voluntary descent from one's rank or dignity in relations with an inferior. That'll preach. You guys feel that? He's the, he's the superior, we're the inferior, and yet he voluntarily lowers himself to go after us. Do you see this divine condescension of God that he would seek after people? Why did Israel leave him? Well, the passage says in verse 1, your sins have been your downfall. Your sins have been your downfall. So just like God is possessive over them, now they're possessive over sin. They have something, and that's sin. And it has been their downfall. And remember, they are sinning for decades and years on end, and they believe the lie that they could keep going on because there are no consequences. At least the no consequences they, they were experiencing. And so over time, these things built up. And so politically, physically, relationally, agriculturally, emotionally, especially spiritual, everything starts crumbling from around them. And the further challenge that we have when we look at sins being our downfall is something that Pastor Ross covered the other day. is because sin has a really tricky thing. Because not only does sin draw you away from God, sin keeps you away from God. See, the more you indulge into any kind of sin, the more your heart becomes harder and harder to resist that sin. The further your heart becomes desensitized to the Holy Spirit's voice and his touch, the further your heart gets hardened to where you don't feel conviction or remorse or shame or anything. And so sin perpetuates more sin and perpetuates more distance. And you see the big conundrum. What do we do about that? When the very thing that drove us from God is continuing to drive us from God, how do we reverse such a situation. So how do they return? God holds them by their hand in verse 2 and hold, and takes them to himself. This is how you do it. Take words with you. This is verse 2. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him. The, the only illustration, and I'm afraid to say this because whenever you use a movie illustration, everyone just starts playing the movie in their head and stop listening to the preacher, but I'm going to try it. In the movie, The Back, Back to the Future, uh, McFly uh, is, is trying to speak to his future wife and woo her. And he has no idea how to speak to people in general and especially women. And so uh, his son uh, feeds him lines. Do you guys remember this? And he's like, you are my destiny. Or what does he say? He says the wrong thing first, right? And, 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 and this scene came to my mind as Israel has been so separated from God, they don't know how to talk to him anymore. They're so unfamiliar with his ways. They don't even know how to return. And so God is, is basically giving them the handbook, you know, say you're beautiful. You are beautiful. Say you're sorry. I'm sorry for the, you know, like he's handing them here, say these things. Let me, let me give you a line. Let me help you because I want to get right with you. I want to re restore myself to you. I want you to be restored to me. Isn't that sweet? You, you would think God would be like, well, I want it to be authentic and spontaneous because if it's not, then it's not true. And, and he wouldn't have this for sure because in, especially in our culture, if you were to do that, you'd say, oh, that's not authentic. Get that out of me. Or imagine if I went home and said, hey, hey Joanna, I, I, uh, uh, you are beautiful and I love you so much. And you're so, uh, I think the words, I mean, you know, like that wouldn't work well. And yet God is so humble that he's like, I'll even go there with you. Can you marvel at this God? It's like a scared child who ran off into the forest thinking that they know their way and then turn around and realize they have no idea where they are. 
and they're panicking and scared and they don't know how to get back and God goes searching for them and brings them by the hand. So here are the steps to be restored that he gives them, starting in verse 2. Forgive all our sins. So he says, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins. The ESV translates this, forgive all our sins or, uh, or take away all iniquity. So when we start off getting right with God, so remember, he's giving us the playbook. How do you return when, you do, when you've blown it and you don't know what to do? We start off saying, forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. Take away my sins. But, but let's think deeper. Another word that is so common in church that we can easily forget. What does this word forgive mean? Well, it, it, we're basically saying to God, do not hold against us something that you should hold against us. Would you not hold against us what you should hold against us? Father, I know I blew it, and I know you should totally cut me off and totally uh, wipe me out, but would you release me of my debts towards you? See, but something to, to remember, when you forgive anyone, you don't just make things okay by saying you're okay. Someone has to absorb the offense and pain. Always. And if any of you here has, have ever forgiven someone who's deeply wronged you, you know the pain of that, of how there's that moment where you just don't want to let it go because you're afraid if you let it go, they'll let, get away with it or something. And, and when you forgive and say, I forgive you and you mean it, you are absorbing that pain and taking it upon yourself. And so when Israel's saying, forgive me, God, they're asking, would you absorb the offense that I deserve? Would you absorb the punishment that I rightfully earned? When God forgives, it is as if you have never done it. And that is why you can walk away with no shame. Because in fact, in Christ, it's as if you have never done it. And so earlier I was talking about how when we struggle with shame, how do we even show our face? If you are in Christ and trusting in Jesus, it's as if you haven't done it. That's how we can be shame-free as we approach him. And so then let's take another question further. How do you ask for forgiveness? How do you actually do that well? Well, one essential reality that is left out of a lot of apologies, especially towards God, is a lack of clarity what we're apologizing for. You guys ever heard someone say, I'm, dear God, I'm sorry for blank. And that's the start. It's good to start there, at least. Have you ever repented of your sin and found yourself right back in it? I think sometimes it's because you actually haven't fully confessed and apologized. And so what happens is this. Whenever we sin against God or anybody, we're simultaneously wounding ourselves and wounding the other. You cannot sin against someone and go undamaged. It always does damage. And you're wounding God and you're wounding yourself. And so when you don't deal with what you actually did and you don't actually address it, address it, you leave the hilt there. You leave the blade there. You leave the wound open. And so what happens? You become vulnerable and things fester and you fall right back into it. Until you address the wound and how you wounded them, you will never fully reconcile. So let me give you an example. Here are the difference. God, I'm sorry I looked at inappropriate images. I've heard that many times in small groups of men, and I've heard myself say something like that too. 
Notice the difference between saying something very general like that and not addressing the wound in yourself or God or those you have sinned. Here, the second example. Father, forgive me for lusting after women who are not my wife. For looking at them and subjecting them in demeaning ways in which you forbid. And being arrogant enough to go forward even when you warn me not to. Instead of loving them, I use them for my own sexual gratification. And I cheated on my beloved wife so that I can get my own kicks. Father, please forgive me and thank you for taking my punishment for my lust. You see the difference? See the difference between that and, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. So you're not dealing with the wound that you inflicted in God's heart. You're not dealing with what you have actually done, and therefore you can never go forward and move forward for long. See, when you clearly walk through what you did and why it was messed up, the gravity of sin is properly highlighted so that when forgiveness and healing can flow upon you and worship can exude out of your heart. I was reminded by this quote from Paul Miller. It's going to be on the screen. It's, one of my, it's my favorite book on prayer called A Praying Life. And he says this, Praying aloud is a, not a New Testament rule. It is just another way of being real in prayer. Everyone is different. Personally, I found it hard to pray out loud because I'm so in the habit of praying silently. Still, when I confess a sin out loud, it feels more real. When I hear my own voice admitting that I've done something wrong, I'm surprised by how concrete the sin feels. I've even thought, oh, I guess that really was wrong. On my way to a social event, I will sometimes pray out loud in the car that I won't fall into sexual lust or people-pleasing. This helps me become much more aware of my need. My prayers become more serious. I really commend you to verbalize prayers. Not always, but there's something very powerful when you put life to them by putting them out there or writing them down. And you see them in all of its glory, and sometimes you see in all of its mess. There's power in proclamation. And I just something that I think our church can grow in that would serve us well. And after this step is dealt with, we move on to the next. Number two, ask to be received. So the first one is to ask for forgiveness. The second is ask to be received. The, the text says this, receive us graciously. Receive us graciously. See, someone can forgive a debt and say, and then I never want to see you again. Your, your fine is paid, but I don't want to see you. See, see, what we're asking for here in repentance, what we're shooting for, is not merely, would you forgive me my debt and not give me what I deserve? Because repentance fundamentally is saying, God, I want you back. I want to come home to you. I don't want the distance between us. We're not merely paying a ticket because we parked in the wrong spot. This is not some impersonal law. The law of God overflows out of the heart of God. And so when we sin, we're coming between us and our love. We are dividing ourselves with him. And so when we repent, we're returning home to him. And we want him to receive us because that's what we want. That's our goal, right? At the end of the day, we don't want just forgiveness so that we can feel guilt-free. Oh, thanks. Now I feel great. Man, man, that guilt was so hard. See you later. No, the guilt removes us from his presence and from intimacy with him. And when the guilt's removed, now we get him. And if you just want the guilt to be removed, you don't really want him. And you're missing the whole point of repentance. And sometimes people will confess something and they've been penting it. It's been pent up for so long that they will literally feel euphoric joy because they finally let it out. And they're like, oh, praise God. But then as you 
press in closer, you realize, actually, they don't want him. They're just so glad they're not carrying that elephant behind their, on their shoulders anymore. That actually happened at our grandmother church, where a man, for years, was committing adultery, and he confessed to the whole church, and he was praising God afterwards. And people were like, praise God for restoration. And the guy just fall right back into stuff like that because he was just excited to finally be guilt-free because he said it. Remember, the guilt is removed only so we can have him. The worst thing about sin is not the negative consequences in your life, which those are many. The worst consequences is that you don't get him anymore. You lose him. So you want your debt to be forgiven for sure, but even more you want God. And st skipping this step is like... Like someone who totally screwed you over, and they just say, like, hey, um, when I mean skipping the skip, step, skipping the step of forgiveness and dealing with your guilt and shame, is like someone who to totally screwed you over, and then you don't even address it. They don't even address it, and they said, hey, can we just go back to how things work? That doesn't work, right? We got to talk about what you just did, bro, or girl, or wife, or husband. We can't just act like nothing happened and just be restored. We got to deal with what happened. And so sometimes if we skip that step because we just want to be with him and I just want to be right with you and not properly grieve and work through that repentance process and the confession process and, and forgiveness process, then, then we shortchange the, the relational restoration. Does that make sense? You need both. You both need the forgiveness and you also need the ultimate end, which is to be received. And, and I love that we're saying receive us graciously, acknowledging that we have no business asking for this except by his kindness and his grace. Receive me even though you shouldn't receive me. But receive me because I know what you are like. And you're a good God. Would you be gracious towards me? And that, that's the only hope you have when you go before God. Is receive me in your grace. Because if you don't have grace, if you don't have this unfathomable grace, and you don't have this unfathomable grace to forgive me and receive me, then I'm, I'm done. Now let's look at the result of what this happens in verse 2. The last part, it says this. That we may offer the fruit of our lips that we may offer the fruit of our lips. I'm not going to go into all the details of what this would mean, but after you are forgiven and you are received graciously, then you are led to worship and joy. And if your worship is small, it's probably because your forgiveness was small, because you didn't realize what you actually did. You didn't deal with the wound. If you have small worship, if when we sing about Christ has risen from the dead and forgiven us and Oh, what a savior. And your heart doesn't move by that? Question if you've actually walked through these steps of truly repenting and mourning over how you've wronged God. It's those who worship is great and big is those who realize how much they've been forgiven. Now, there is personality involved. There is expressions involved. There's all those things that muddy the waters a little bit. But just check your heart. Are you expressing worship as if you have been given the greatest gift ever? like been forgiven the greatest debt ever that you could never pay except with your life. And so now we continue our worship with this next step, number three, renouncing replacements. Renouncing replacements. This is the third step. In order to return towards God, you must turn away that which you replaced him with. And so repentance is literally turning. And so if you're going one way, that means you're literally saying, I'm going to go the other way. What that means is everything I was thinking or doing or believing was wrong, and I'm switching the way I'm thinking about it, and I'm changing and moving towards you. And so if you are truly repenting, there must be a change in thinking and doing eventually at least. It has to happen. If that doesn't happen, there's not true coming home. 
Verse three, look at what he does. Assyria, this is what you must say. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our hands have made. Let, let me unpack what that means real quickly. Assyria cannot save us. Let's start there. So Assyria was Israel's superpower in the north, and Egypt was the superpower in the south. And Israel would repeatedly go to the north and the south looking for someone to help them so that they actually didn't have to turn to Yahweh. Could you protect us? Could you provide for us? Would you care for us? And so what they're saying, they need to, God is feeding them the line, and they literally need to say, that won't do. They will not save us. And then we will not mount war horses. That's the next line. They would often believe that if they had the, the right army, that they could dig themselves out of the hole. And then he says, we will never again say, our gods, to what our hands have made. And so they would make these idols, and then they would literally say, you're my God, which Isaiah has a lot to say about that. This reminds us of an earlier passage in Hosea 5.13 we covered before. But basically, Ephraim, Ephraim is another word for the northern tribe of Israel. They're seeing their sores, their brokenness, their sickness, and instead of dealing with it by going to, to God, realizing they've self-inflicted themselves, they've like drunk the poisonous vial, they're just going to other nations trying to get help. Would you help me? Would you help me? And God's like, listen, listen, you drunk it yourself. And if you want that to be taken care of, come to me. Don't go to them. They can't do anything. And they're not realizing that it's God is the one who can heal them. But he is not able to cure you. Not able to heal your source. For them to move towards Yahweh to get right with God, they need to verbally and physically replace and renounce everything they've replaced God with. And so, as, as we look critically at Israel, there's a lot of lessons for us too. What's your Assyria? What's your Egypt? That you need to say, that will not save me. Maybe it's money or a relationship, or a security, or a career. And I think something that will be really fitting, especially during the ministry time, is that you literally say, that will not save me. That will not give me everything I believe it will give me. Because ultimately, the cure, the source, is God. And we need to verbally say, that boyfriend, or that girlfriend, or that having a child, or whatever it is that you can cling to, having fame, or popularity, or whatever it is, that will not save me. There's something very powerful when you proclaim that and tell God, I have been a fool. Those will not save me. You all, you will. And the reason for the whole verse is found here at the end, the, the, the ground that, that gives reason why God could say such things. Look at this beautiful line, one of the most beautiful lines in the Bible. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. Can I get an amen on that? Mm. That's good. That's one of the greatest lines ever. In you, the fatherless find compassion. Amen. This is such good news, especially in America with over half of us growing, out, growing up without fathers, either physically or emotionally. And so we have an epidemic of fatherlessness. But praise God that we have a God who's a father and we can find compassion in him. See, this passage can also be translated as for in you, the fatherless receive compassion. And I like that translation more than find, because find can kind of suggest that you do the searching. 
And if you read and kept up with this whole, whole series on Hosea, they're not doing the searching, are they? In fact, they're doing the running, and God's doing the searching. So in you, the fatherless receive compassion as God pursues the self-made orphans. Did you catch that? Self-made orphans. They have orphaned themselves and ran from home, and yet God goes after the fatherless in his compassion. Amen? And what will God's mercy be towards them? Well, let me just stop here. Back then, being fatherless is about a death warrant for your family. Because if you don't have a father, father you don't have a livelihood. Unless you had an able-bodied son. So spiritually and physically, Israel got to that point where they lost their military, they lost their political system, their religious system. They were spiritually fatherless, and yet God has compassion on their state. It's like a father who sees his pitiful son who rejected him and did, went against every command, every advice he gave him, and he sees him and he says, my heart is moved with compassion. I cannot let you stay in the slums any longer. And unlike the prodigal son, it's like the father went to the pigsty and grabbed the son out of the mud. He's good. He meets us where he's at, where we're at in his compassion. And so what will God's response be to their repentance, their half-baked repentance that God literally feeds them? Well, verse 4. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will heal, heal their waywardness. This word waywardness is also translated as apostasy. What does that mean? It means basically, I'm going to heal their bent hearts. And as we said the other th three weeks ago, Israel's hearts are bent away from God, and yet God's heart is bent towards them. God must heal them and transform them if there's going to be any hope. Because even if they repent and get right with him, if he doesn't heal their heart, what will they do right after? They will go right after other gods again. They will wander again. So God has to deal with their heart. Jeremiah 79, a very popular, also misunderstood verse, but helpful to talk about. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And yet, God can understand it and God can cure it. And so God needs to heal their waywardness. I, one of my professors in school, Rick Shank, he said, our wanters are off. Our wanters are off. Isn't that so good? Can you just say that my wanter is off? <laughs> that sounds weird, huh? Your wanter is off, and God is going to heal their wanter, their desires, their wanting. They want the wrong things. They want the things that bring them death, and God is going to heal their wayward wanter and realign it with what matters most. And if you claim to follow Christ and you don't have any evidence that your wanter has changed, double check if God has really transformed you. And ask, God, are you really transforming me, or am I just playing the part? And look at the result of the wanting, wanter changing, the waywardness being healed. He will love them freely. Love them freely. He will love them freely because nothing is in the way that would hinder love. We'll come back to this line in a minute, but let's see the reason behind this unfathomable free love. For my anger has turned away from them. Why? This comes out of nowhere, kind of like two weeks ago when I preached. 
Where is this coming from? Is God just flipping the coin and saying, well, it's time now. I'm going to not be angry at you, even though you deserve all the anger. Because really, they haven't done anything that would suggest that his anger should turn from them. See, this is not for my anger has turned from them uh, because they've repented. He's giving the reason why this whole interchange can happen. How is it possible that God could forgive them and be right with them his anger turn away if he's a just God? And that is a real big deal. Is this God? Is God just some emo, volatile, bipolar God that, oh, I love them, I love them not, oh, let's flip a coin? No, 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 what's going on here? Well, I think Romans 3.25 really helps. I'm just going to quickly turn to it on the screen in the New Living Translation because I think it just helps um, clarify some things for those who aren't familiar with this verse. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Now, note this. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. Now, this is a whole sermon, a whole book easily, but let me just clear, clearly clarify that what's going on here the only reason why God can withhold anger towards Israel is because God, in him being outside of time, can look upon Christ as they are putting their hope in the promised Messiah, even though they don't know who Jesus is, as they're putting hope in the future Messiah, what he'll come. God can now retroactively turn his anger away for those in the past in the Old Covenant. So, so if you've ever wondered, how does God forgive those in the Old Covenant when they didn't have Jesus? This, this is a very, very simple, quick, unnuanced explanation of it. So God has turned away from them because he has turned on his son. Because of Christ, there is nothing to hinder God's love towards you. Even when we blow it, his anger doesn't get in the way. And that's why I have to say this, even though I know I'm going long. Romans 8, 38. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can. God can love us freely because of that. Because God is forgiving them, receiving them, transforming them, loving them, and turning away his anger, beautiful results will unfold. Okay, so now let's, let's, let's kind of land, the, we're, we're landing the plane. Now that all this happened, what are the results that are going to happen? Five through eight. I will be, now just as we're going to read this, there's going to be a lot of agricultural metaphors, and a lot of it that's going to be like right over you, okay? But, but track with me. I'm, I'm going to try to unpack the, the general idea I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Now, real quick, the dew is the key to the rest because the dew is, is water, right? Dew is like little water. And that natural occurrence is devastating to any society that doesn't have dew, right? Because that waters the plants. If they don't have life, they don't have plants, they have nothing. And so this, this whole imagery is shedding out of this fact that God is a life giver. He's the one that gives them their fruitfulness. Okay, so the dew comes and... Israel will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. That's a good thing, okay? People are like, Lebanon? Um, His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. So a lot of good things are happening. Now, we can't unpack them all. I don't understand all of the imagery either, but, but a few things to note is that they're, they're going to be rooted deeply. 
they're going to smell good. <laughs> they're going to be beautiful and blossoming instead of dying. They're going to be bringing forth life. They're going to be in such a state where other people will be under their shade. You see that? They will be under their shade. And that, that kind of suggests this picture about how the other nations, Israel and God's people, ultimately will fulfill the destiny that they are called to live. That they're going to be the, the priesthood of all, all people and they're going to be a, a shining light on Yahweh's goodness. And all nations will flow to them and see God's goodness and dwell under their shade. It's a beautiful thing. All these metaphors encompass every aspect and sphere of health for Israel. He's not going to just redeem some of it. He's going to redeem all of it. He's going to make everything far more beautiful than they could ever imagine. And that includes all of us. That includes faithful Israelites who put their trust in the Messiah and are faithful to Yahweh. And that includes all of us here. None of us here that I know that are ethnic Jew, ethnically Jew. All of us who put our hope in Christ. That God, when Jesus comes back and makes all things new on this risen, uh, redeemed earth, Everything that was ever wrong, he's going to make right, and he's going to make them beautiful in such a way that we cannot even imagine or fathom. And so any suffering you're going through right now will not be lost. Any pain will all be redeemed, which is the reason why Christians can have hope and look like crazy people when we're going through the most painful situations, because we know he's going to, we're going to blossom like a lily. We're going to, we're going to have roots that go deep. We're going to, I don't know these words very well. <laughs> all this good stuff right here. All this agricultural stuff that me, a suburban city boy, don't, don't, don't know well, even though I grew up in Georgia. The, the verse, this section ends in verse 8 where he says, Ephraim, remember that's another name for northern Israel. What more have I do with idols? Just ask this question. I'm done talking about idols. I'm done with this. You're done with this. I will answer him and care for him. God will care for you. I am like a flourishing juniper. I know that's your favorite plant, all of you. But flourishing juniper, your fruitfulness comes from me. All this language is, is a breath of fresh air for the Israelites hearing this for the first time because they're, they're, they're in a famine. It's just dust. And so they're hearing all this garden-like language. Eh? And they're seeing how God is redeeming, even from the very beginning, what happened at the fall in the garden. God is restoring and reversing, and he's going to make a great garden city, but that's another sermon. How should we now live? Gratefully, our application is in verse 9. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Verse 9 ends. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of Yahweh are right. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. The book of Hosea just ends like that. Just mic drops, just like, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to live or are you going to die? Are you going to be like the wise who understand what I'm saying and awaken up to the, the death of this world, waken up to the slumber that everyone is in? Or are you going to stay sleeping? Are you going to stay closed-minded and hard-hearted? That's a question all of us here have to face. And I don't know, we have a number of visitors, I don't know all of you. I don't know where you're at with Jesus. I don't know if you're a skeptic. I don't know if you're just maybe hurt and maybe de-churched and you've been jaded by the church because people have wronged you in ways they should have not. I don't know, but the reality is every single one of us here have to end on that verse nine. And it's, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do about this call? Are you, are you gonna put your trust and you're gonna turn and come home to your creator 
<clears throat> and Christian, if you fall away, you're going to come home to your father. Are you going to come home or are you going to resist? He's given you the playbook. He's given you the notes to exactly what to say and how to go forward. He's made the way with his son. Imagine the huge chasm between us and God that we created, and he just threw the cross right between so that you can walk across. He made every way possible so that you can come back to him. Would you be so foolish to spurn away the greatest gift he can give of his son? Would you be so foolish and so hard-hearted to say, I don't want that, I don't need that? Unto death, he loves you, and he made a way for you. This is simultaneously your greatest problem and your greatest opportunity. Simultaneously, your greatest problem and opportunity. Your greatest problem is the fact that God is your enemy if you've rejected him and strayed from him. And your greatest opportunity is that he's made every way for you to come home. Please come home. If you want to be right with God, we'd love to talk to you about that. And the next steps would be to confess your sins. And I'm going to show you a kind of way you can do that as I end the sermon. But then get baptized and be committed to his body, his church, and give everything to him. So how do you return? And so I'm going to go into something very practical now. For those of us here who struggle and screw up on a weekly basis like myself, and for those of you guys who are not right with God at all and you need to return, here's a really basic way of how you can return. So here is CARS, okay, C-A-R-S. I try to make it as simple and as exhaustive as possible, which is something that I kind of do. Those both don't work, simple and exhaustive. But whenever you struggle, whenever you stumble, whenever you sin, here's something you can remember. How do I repent? How do I get right with God? This is a very simple thing that I encourage you to write down, memorize, take a screenshot of something like that, um, and, and try to utilize it in your discipleship, utilize it in your own daily walk with God. This is a very simple way to, to grasp the whole heart because oftentimes repentance can be so ambiguous. And I found myself so often when I screw up, I'm like, ah, oh, sorry, God, I missed it. I'm sorry I messed up, and I just try to move on, and that's not enough. That's why I fall back, and that's why you may fall back. So here's something that can help you, cars. Number one, confess your sins. Like I said earlier, be explicit, be specific. Give your heart to God. Tell him exactly what happened, and if you don't fully know the way, ask God, hey, God, I don't even know all that I did wrong. I just, I know it's wrong, and tell him that. Tell him and be honest. He already knows. He needs to hear it from you. You got to address the wound. Number two, affirm. Affirm God's forgiveness and love. This is super, super important because at the end of the day, you are not earning forgiveness. It's already been granted in Christ, and so you are receiving it. You are agreeing with what, what, what has already been declared in heaven. You follow me? You're agreeing what has already been declared in heaven. And God in his kindness has forgiven you in Christ, and so you are affirming it. Yes, that's true. I don't feel like it's always true. Yes, it's true. I rebuke the evil one and the liar, uh, the, the, the accuser of my soul who's saying that's not true. I affirm it, and you receive that. You're declaring that over yourself. I'm affirming God's forgiveness and his love. Number three, request grace to change. Request for the grace to change. We cannot change apart from God's grace, apart from the Holy Spirit transforming us. And so, so, so then we take the next step. Now that I've been received, now that I've been forgiven, now that um, I've received and, and, and affirmed God's grace in my life, I'm now going to ask you to change, transform me. Would you give me the grace to transform? This is not where you pull up your bootstraps and say, all right, I'm going to get to work now, and I'm going to earn my forgiveness. I'm going to do good deeds and make things right. No, no, no. You say, God, by grace, I've been saved. And by grace, I'm transformed. And you ask for grace to trans- be transformed. And finally, share. This is a part that is, I would say, extremely underutilized and forgotten, especially in our reformed circles, is that everything is personal and no one knows. And James chapter five says that if you don't 
confess your sins to one another, you won't be healed. And I think that's both a spiritual and a physical reality in that passage. And so it's very important. After you walk through these steps, you share it with someone and let that person pray for you. Let that person remind you and affirm you of the grace of God. Sometimes I need someone to look at me and say, Sam, you are forgiven. You have repented, you are forgiven. And because my heart feels so much shame, I don't believe it. I need someone else to look at me and say, you are forgiven, Sam. And I need someone else to say, Sam, this is a pattern I've seen in your life. Let's strategize and let me fight for you. Let's, let's, let's do this together. This is so important. If you miss this share part, you will fall back eventually. I promise you, God has ordained and set the church to fight and flourish when we're doing it together. You do it alone, you'll have a short season, but you will fall. Share with those who will fight for you. Like I said earlier in our ministry time, this would be a really good time to do this during the ministry time. You can do cars with them. And you could actually put this up during the ministry time. Can you guys remember to put that up? That'd be, that would serve us well. And you could even declare, Assyria will not save me. My job will not save me. That relationship will not save me, whatever it is. Now, let me, let me and, and land this plane. We've, we're done with this beautiful book. We're done with Hosea, and it's been great. And I just want to remind you, the book of Hosea reminds us of how har- our hearts can be idol factories, as John Calvin says. And there are deep, adulterous ways and tendencies in us. And yet, in our mess, God pursues us. And we see a God who loves us greater still. We, he pursues us when no one pursues. He loves when he's rejected. He forgives when he's wronged. We see a God that is so countercultural that it would be impossible for someone to dream up and make him up unless it was actually true. We see a God who disciplines because he only wants to re- restore us. He, a God who will take you out to the wilderness and strip you of everything you're putting trust in so all you have is him. A God who adopts a self-orphaned. A God who provides all that we need. A God who is fiercely jealous because he's the only one that is truly worthy of such love. A God who will go to no end to redeem his love, and a God who will suffer unto death to pursue, heal, and restore his bride and his children. Amen? What if we were a church that swam in these realities daily? We would be the happiest, most loving church. We would. But it must start from here. It must overflow from his love out of us. And what God has done to us in this book of Hosea, he wants to do through us, brothers and sisters. It cannot just stop here. Oh, thank you, God. He wants to now flow through us, this love, this redeeming love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book. What a gift it's been. And I pray that you continue to transform us by it. Meet us now, even in, in, in my weakness in preaching and my failure to, to make much of you as I ought to. Please meet us now. And I pray that we will be able to execute cars and really get right with you and meet you. Please, Lord, meet us all now and restore us to yourself, because that's the goal. In Jesus' name, amen.